Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than the pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan. Hello, everybody. This is Shane. Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number 24, the Robbie Cano episode. Uh, today, we have Alan Shipnuck on the podcast. Alan is one of my favorite golf writers, one of my favorite sports writers, period. Um, his resume, he told me, he said, keep it short when I told him I would do this intro after we spoke. Uh, so I'll try to, but uh, it's an impressive one. I think Alan is kind of like, when it comes to golf, uh, a little bit of a living legend. It might embarrass him for me to say that, but he uh, he is somebody who has won numerous uh, Golf Writers Association of America GWAA awards. I believe he has the most all time, and if he doesn't, he's like neck and neck with Dan Jenkins, another legend. So uh, yeah, so he's been doing this a long time. Uh, he wrote his first cover story for Sports Illustrated on Ken Griffey Jr. when he was 21 years old. Uh, a couple years later, he became the youngest staff writer in SI history. Um, and then he's just kind of been doing it since he's watched the, the ownership of golf.com change hands uh, a couple times, but he has remained and he's definitely the main draw. You can kind of set your watch by, um, by Alan's feature stories and how interesting they are and, um, you know, how much reaction they provoke in a very good way. So, uh, that is my guest today and I don't believe I have anything else to say. So let's do this. Let's get right to it. Up next, Alan Shipnut. break. Alan, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, you know, we'll get the pandemic question out of the way. I know you're a Leo Tolstoy figure in the sense that you're a writer with about 19 children. So uh, how's everything going for you? How are you How are you handling the, uh, the COVID-19 stuff? Well, only four acknowledged, but uh, <laughs> it could be like when Bob Marley dies, it'll all come out of the woodwork for a piece of the estate, but I kind of doubt it. Um, <laughs> It's, it's been an interesting time for sure. You know, writers in some ways are, have been sheltering in place our whole lives. I mean, it's, uh, you know, hold up in a room, hunched over a keyboard. That's a familiar feeling for me. So, um, the difference is I haven't been out in the world reporting stories and, and covering events. And so I've, I've certainly missed that. Um, but we were still putting out golf magazine. We're still filling up golf.com all the time. So I, I have been relatively busy, busier than much busier than I thought I would be. It's just more phone interviews, Zoom interviews, kind of opinion pieces, um, things that you, you can do without having to get on an airplane. But uh, I've taken a couple trips. I drove out to uh, Scottsdale. This was in, I think, early, let's see, April, when um, 
really the only professional sports in America was the outlaw tour and the yeah. mini tours that were being played other, the beautifully named outlaw tour. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of board tour players who showed up for the sky still open. That was a fun, that was about 10 hours each way, but, and then I drove to Bandon for the opening of the sheep ranch. And that was also about a little less, maybe nine and a half hours each way, but, uh, it certainly changed my idea of, of what's drivable comfortably, you know, between podcasts and books on tape and, mm-hmm calling old relatives I haven't spoken to like the, the, the drives actually kind of flew by. So um, I've gotten out a little bit, but uh, I'll be the PGA championship, um, which is an easy drive for me here in Northern California. And I'm looking forward to kind of just seeing the new protocols and the new reality and, and actually watching some, some golf in person. That's going to be fun. I think I discovered or didn't discover, but finally had it hammered into my head last year that podcasts are definitely better than music for long drives. They kind of make it go quicker. Are you in that camp too? You know, it's funny. I have to admit, even though I was I was recording my own podcast three, four years ago, I've kind of tapered off in the last year because like every person in the world has a podcast. No offense, Shane. <laughs> Including and me. So, yeah. No. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> it's like my mo as a professional is I try and do things that people are not doing, and so the, the podcast space became so crowded. Um, I kind of lost interest, but um, I have. You know, there's been so many that have popped up in the last year and I haven't really consumed them in, in great detail. So, and I was kind of doing field research in some ways, uh, kind, of, kind of go down the rabbit hole on some of the golf podcasts that I'd, I'd maybe listen to one or two episodes when they came out. But, uh, so it was, it was helpful professionally, but it also, as you say, just passed the time. You're like, wow, that was 48 minutes. And I, I just drove 57 miles and <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it goes pretty quick. So uh, yeah, and I'd never done books on tape before, or not tape anymore, of course, but um, that's a new that's a new invention. And I always wondered how much I'd be able to retain because I'm very much a visual mm-hmm. learner. And I, when I read something, I, I can keep it in my brain for a really long time, but listening, not so much, I thought. But uh, so I've, that's, been, that's been a new revelation. It's kind of a fun way to pass the drives as well. So Nice. Uh, well, you, yeah, know, you don't have to worry. I have uh, plenty of self-loathing for having a podcast. You're welcome to contribute to it as much as you want <laughs> over the course of this. Um, I mean, clearly yours is different and unique. I'm yeah, just about all the other yeah. Look, I do interviews with people. There's nobody else doing that, right? I mean, <laughs> that's got to be a yeah. unique format. Uh, no, my the podcast I like, <laughs> I, I kind of hate podcasts myself right now. Um, I, when I drove down to South Carolina, I just listened to this podcast about the civil war with a husband and wife talking like in alternating sentences. And it sounds like the most dull thing you can imagine, but I'm like, you know what? This is, (laughs) this is, I think the ultimate form of podcast or like, maybe I'm just old, but this is the kind I like now. Just, just two boring people talking about history. Uh, so maybe I'll gravitate that toward that at some point. But, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Alan, is that, uh, in terms of personal health, you posted a picture on Twitter uh, of you with needles in your feet uh, the other day. And I think America probably wants to know um, what that's all about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I got some DMs about, uh, you know, foot fetish <laughs> photos. I'm, I'm not, I mean, we all need a second revenue stream, but I think I'm going to abstain on that. But uh, no, it's just it's just old man stuff. I, my, I have plantar fasciitis. And, um, oh, man. I know. It was the first time I ever had it. And I have to say, I, I know people suffer greatly and NBA careers have been ruined by yeah. it, but a, a couple of sessions of acupuncture fixed me right up. It was remarkable. I, I'd never, I'd only done acupuncture once before in my life. I was, I was in LA doing a story for Sports Illustrated on the UCL, UCLA and USC 
basketball and I woke up bad hotel pillow mattress combo and my, my neck was at like a 45 degree angle. And mm. my sister lives in LA. I said, can you help me? And she's like, yeah, my friend, uh, I have a friend who's into all kinds of healing arts. So I get this email from a friend saying, yeah, I've got a great acupuncturist. Here's the name and number. And I just dialed it. They took me. And when I got there, it was, it was an older Asian gentleman came up to meet me. His eyes looked a little funky, but I didn't think too much of it. And as we're walking back to his <laughs> office, he's touching the walls. And then we sit down and for the consultation, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's blind. Whoa, and, um, yeah. It was, it was in the email, but I didn't read that far. And, um, but apparently in, in some Asian cultures, they steer blind people towards acupuncture because it's so tactile. It's something you can do. Mm-hmm. And he was amazing. But that was my first experience. And it was, it was such a jolt that I didn't do it for about 10 years. But I, I'm now a true believer. So thank you for asking about my foot. It's fine. Uh, DM me and I'll consider sending more photos. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I've got 20 other questions about your feet, so we're not nearly done with that subject. <laughs> uh, no, but so yeah, Alan, I would, um, you've told the story a lot of how you got into golf and, and became a writer and it's a really good story. Um, but I wanted to ask first just to talk a little bit about your childhood growing up. I know you're a California guy. Um, you worked at Pebble Beach. Were you always in Northern California? Is that where you were born and raised? Yes, in um, the hometown of John Steinbeck, a, a little dusty farming village called Salinas, mm-hmm. which um, has not that much to recommend itself other than it's about 15 miles from Pebble Beach and um, and all that glorious coastline. And so, I, you know, I, I it's, a, it's an okay place to grow up. There's not much to do, so you're forced to uh, explore the world of, of books and magazines and this is pre-internet, of course, but if you want to understand the the wider world, you have to kind of seek it. And uh, so, I was always an avid reader. You know, I both my parents were, were teachers. Um, my mom became a politician, but she'd been a history teacher. My dad was economics yeah. teacher. So it's kind of the the uh, grew up in a world of ideas, and uh, my family was always laying interesting books. And my my uncle in Berkeley started clipping out the Roger Angel stories, the New Yorker and sending to me, sending them to me when I was probably in middle school and my mom would travel. That was back when the national sports daily was going gangbusters, which is a little before your time. But, um, you know, imagine a world before the internet where all you really had was your, your local paper. And so whenever my mom would travel, she'd pick up the the national, which was of course edited by Frank DeFord right, and had all kinds yeah. All kinds of Hall of Fame writers, and so she would. I would read that regularly, and you know, became a Sports Illustrated, Sporting News, Sport Magazine uh, subscriber. So I, I, you know, I think I knew from an early age that that I wanted to be a sports writer, and uh, so I did the junior high newspaper and the high school yearbook, and I wrote for the Salinas Californian, which is our, our local paper, when I was starting as a junior in high school. So. I was kind of lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do when I was really young because I have friends who are in their 40s who are still trying to figure that out. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> not there's anything wrong with that, but it's it certainly if you if you find your passion and you turn and you're pretty good at it and it sends you down <laughs> a certain path. I mean, it, um, that that's a lucky thing in life. So, um, in some ways, I'm thankful that I grew up in such a boring town because you know if I had nothing else to do but read and, and play sports, and so uh, that, that kind of shaped my 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 worldview. Uh, and a real quick sidetrack is it? You said it's Angel Roger Angel. Is that how you say his last name? That's how I say it. I think that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's as far as I know. That's right. But I've read him for a long time too, and uh, I knew he was old. But he's going to be a hundred years old in September nineteenth uh, this year, and he's still an amazing writer. 
I know he, you know, the, the angels, the Bob Dylan's, I mean, th these guys are phenomenons, you know, Philip Roth, he, they're still doing it. Um, Roth is dead, but he was doing it into his, into his eighties. Um, these guys are so prolific and, uh, you know, it's funny cause Art Spander, you know, Art, he's, he's a Northern California fixture. Oh, yeah, of course. And because we both went to UCLA, we've always had kind of this kinship and, um, I love art. He's just such a character and he's half blind and he's, he's stooped over and <laughs> you know, he's, in, he's in his mid eighties and he's, he's cranking out like four stories a day on deadline. And I used probably 15 years ago, I used to look at art and be like, man, I hope that's not me. <laughs> like, am I going to be one of those guys haunting the press room? Uh, yeah, and now I think yeah. it's awesome. Like, I mean, it gives, it gives you, it organizes your life and you're, you're part of exciting events and you, you're still part of the conversation. And, uh, I, I think art is like a hero and, uh, I love chatting them up and yeah, that's, you know, that's something that didn't occur to me, I think, until the last couple of years of how important it is to be involved in something and, and to sort of maintain, like, not just a routine, but maintain your own sense of, I guess, like relevance or significance. Because um, I look at those guys and I'm like, man, I'm 37 and I kind of feel like within a year I might get sick of writing. <laughs> I, I hope that's not the case. But like, you know what I mean? It's like those guys still doing it. And when they're so old, it's like, yes. They have found a purpose and they do not need a mission in life because they have it and they will die like pleased. And you know what I mean? Like their lives will, will always be good in that way. Yeah. And you know, it's, it becomes the rituals of your life. You go to Augusta in the spring and you're, you still get to go to neat places and you see your friends who um, otherwise you might not have much contact with. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of the majors now is just we're all together in one room and, yep whether it's, it's Shane Ryan or whomever, it's like, oh, I haven't seen this guy in six months. It's fun to catch up. And you know, the long, the two hour lunches and in, in the media dining, I mean, that's, that's the best part of the week. I don't care who wins a tournament. It's just fun to like shoot the breeze and get the gossip. And then, you know, we're all on top of more kids and writing books and doing things. And it's uh, the only time you see them really is on the road. So now, you know, I get it. Like I, like you said, I, I always, for a long time, I wondered like, man, do I really want to be that guy? But I think it's pretty cool that, that you know, the, the Roger Angels of the world are still out there typing. I mean, it's aspirational for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking on the other end of the spectrum, uh, in 1994, Alan, you wrote a story. I believe it was a cover story for SI on Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, how old were you at the time? Was it 19? No, I started my internship when I was 20, and I, I just turned 21 when that story came out. So you're 21, and it's a really cool story, and I, to some extent, I'm sure you're sick of telling it, but can you kind of go over a little bit how that opportunity came about and how you managed to do this story as a 21-year-old? Um, God, when I think back to myself at 21, just how terrified I would have been to to actually sit there and write prose that was going to appear on the cover of a magazine like that. Um, how did that come about? Yeah, well, I mean, it really, as I was saying, like, I had... I had known I wanted to be a sports writer my whole life. Even when I was 21, you know, I'd been doing it for half my life, starting at the Washington middle school paper. And I used to remember the far side, those, uh, they used to have, uh, Gary Larson. Yeah, cartoons. of course. Yeah. Yeah. We, we would cut them out and, and reprint them. And we got in trouble from the principal because of copyright issues. And I remember going to the principal and said, this is a junior <laughs> high newspaper. Gary Larson doesn't care. Um, and you know, I, was, I was, I was fighting the man even back then, Shane. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think Gary Larson would have been totally cool with it. He seems like a great guy. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, bureaucracy. And you know, my junior year in high school, I was basically the number two writer at the Salinas Californian, which 
was a rinky dink paper, but still had a circulation of like 55,000. Wow. And yeah. it was, again, pre-internet when the paper came out in the morning, it was a big deal. That's what everybody read. And I was covering high school sports. So uh, it was a big deal in our little town. And I would, I would go out and cover a big football game of the night. And, um, and you know, I'd, I had to keep my own stats, my own play by play. And I'd, I'd race back and my, my hand-me-down Volkswagen bug and have to type with all these grizzled little newspaper guys waiting for my <laughs> story so they could go home. You know, there's like 10 dudes just staring at me as I'm hunched over this typewriter. I mean, that's the most <laughs> deadline pressure I've ever felt in my life. Forget SI. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, the Daily Bruin, really, I got into Northwestern, which was supposedly the best journalism school. I went back to visit it and... The, um, the school paper was like this pamphlet. It was like eight pages. And back that was back when Northwestern athletics was a joke. I mean, this is, this right, is the early right. 90s. It was awful. And the Daily Bruin was 100 pages a day. They had like 30 pages of sports. And, um, and you know, UCLA was winning Rose Bowls, and they were, their basketball team was building up to the national championship, and even all the secondary sports, whether it's volleyball or whatever, they're powerhouses. And so... Um, I mean, UCLA is a wonderful place to go to school in general, but the reason I went was because of Daily Bruin. And so my first two years, I was, I was pumping out stories every day and flying to Oregon and Arizona for, for basketball and football games. And so by the time I became an intern at Sports Illustrated, I was so cocky. Like, I believed that I belonged there and I, that That's I could funny. do the job. And, um, you know, I, I've gone back and read some of those old Daily Bruin stories, and they're honestly, they're not bad. I'm like, wow, you know, at 19 years old, I'd kind of sort of figured out how to do the, do the work. And so when, when I got these opportunities at SI, I felt comfortable, and I, I knew it was a great opportunity. You know, it was a, it was a kind of a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that had been presented to me, and that could massively affect my entire future. But it was like, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time already. So, um it was also, I think a lot of, a lot of the, the grizzled editors had no expectations and never even planned to run the story. So in that regard, uh, it, there wasn't pressure in that they were holding six pages and sure, it was on a tight right, line. Right. It wasn't like writing the master's game story. Um, so, um, but they liked the story. They ran it and it certainly um, secured my future with the magazine. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, that, that's how I, I, I felt like I could do it. I think it's probably that way in any you know, you're some kid who's taken apart uh, their, their dad's old computer in the garage and you're learning about things and you go to coding camp and you build this and you build that and you get some internship at Google when you're 20 and you're just cocky enough to think you know what you're doing and sometimes you do. So um, I, I think there's probably a lot of stories in a lot of different fields where, where people were lucky. They, they knew what they wanted and they, they kind of refined their, their skills. I mean, it's the same as you know, Jordan Spieth playing in AJGA events and winning a national championship at Texas. Like, how was he ready to win when he got to the PGA Tour? Because he'd been winning for 10 years. That's right. and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, you know, you just, you just build up to these things. And so, um, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing um, time in my life for sure. Being an intern in New York um, and again, pre-internet, I mean, the magazine staff was so stacked. I mean, they had, they had a dozen or more Hall of Fame writers. They had all of these young guys chomping at the bit, uh, whether it was, you know, Steve Russian or whomever. I mean, it was, it was amazing how, how many great writers there were. And it was hyper-competitive environment. 
um, which was a little intimidating to step into, but it definitely, that, that was also part of it is like, I knew there was, there was 20 other guys down and gals down the hallway who were dying for this opportunity. So, uh, there was a sense of urgency to, to take advantage of it. Uh, you know, I took a class with Tim Crothers who worked at SI. I don't know if it was at that same exact time, but it oh, was. I, I almost put, I almost threw his name out when everyone knows Crothers, right? Because the North Carolina connection. Yeah, yeah. So I went to, when I went to grad school, when I decided journalism was going to be my full-time thing, like 10 years after you, or like 20 years after you knew. <laughs> it, uh, but I went there and yeah, he taught a sports writing class and he was really good. But he, um, it was so interesting, Alan, because, you know, I came of age and I continued to work in an internet climate where editing just basically means making like one or two changes, but it's more about organization and things like that. It's not about rewriting stories or anything. And he showed us one of his original features. Um, He gave us his first draft and then showed us the draft that went in the magazine and kind of explained how, you know, like basically like four or five steps in between with four or five different people on these stories. And the difference between the original copy and the final was so incredible. It was like profound. It's like really not even the same story. Um, was it like that? I mean, when you started at SI in the 90s, was that the same kind of thing where uh, they would just like drastically change the copy? Yeah, so that's funny because Crothers was one of those guys who had been at the magazine for a while and was 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 just scratching and clawing for opportunities and, and to move up the, the invisible food chain. Right, and, right. You know, it, it was a weird place in that it was the leadership was very homogenous. It was a bunch of white guys in their fifties and sixties, most of whom went to Princeton. Um, and, uh, it was, you know, we had millions and millions of readers, but only like eight or nine people really matter. And those are the editors down the hall. And for whatever reason, Crothers just didn't vibe with those guys. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought he was a massively talented dude. And I would read. So part of the, the cool thing of my internship is I had a printer, and on my desk, it wasn't for me, it was for the editors who were kind of in that part of the hallway, but um, every story that would, that would get filed, it would just get disgorged out of this printer. And so I could read all the raw copy as it came in, much like you got to do in this class. And then I could call up on these archaic old computer terminals. You could see as it flowed through the, the food chain of the first edit, the second edit, wow. the copy editor, the fact checker, the senior editor, the managing editor, and everyone would put their notes in. And even though I knew nothing, I found it totally dispiriting. It was like, I love the original copy and it was rarely improved during the process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact checkers were crucial. They, they helped the process cause they caught a lot of little things. And, and I, I mean, I, I have a great love and respect for fact checkers. A lot of writers, they, you know, they, they that would drive them crazy. But I appreciate what they did because they, they would save your bacon. But some of these other these other editors who, you know, if we're going to be blunt, a lot of them were failed writers. You know, they they never made it as writers at right. SI. They yeah. went they went to the editing track. I mean, if you've read "You Got to Play Hurt" by Dan Jenkins, like uh, that's the, a running bit in the whole thing is the. Um, it's fiction, but it's obviously about Sports Illustrated and his frustrations <laughs> with the whole process. So what's interesting is when I got my internship at Sports Illustrated, um, it was to work on this this new idea called Golf Plus, and it was going to be this supplemental coverage that went to about six or seven hundred thousand subscribers out of you know three point five million, based on surveys they'd taken that said they loved golf, or honestly, they just were in the right uh, zip code demographically, and. Um, 
and it was it was it was going to be this small little thing just to hoover up some some ad money. But so the big Bertha had just come out, and the, the ad dollars were pouring in, and we literally could not write editorial content fast enough. And so that's why I even got the opportunities that I did. Um, and so, uh, but Golf Plus was was kind of this parallel uh organization to the magazine as a whole and honestly some of the the senior editors there had a dim opinion of it like they just considered it an insert it wasn't like the real sports illustrated right and, right um, but that what was great is we had more freedom we had little oversight and they actually streamlined the, the editing process there was there was fewer cooks in the kitchen because these guys still had to put the weekly magazine out. So they, they didn't want to be bothered by what was turning out to be an owner's <laughs> workload in golf. And so uh, to, to go, answer your question, I got a far less editing than someone like Crothers who was writing a, a college football story um, for, for the national magazine. And that was wonderful. I mean, there's really, there was a kindly old gent named um, Joe Marshall who was, so what they used to have what was called a red pencil and a blue pencil. Those were two different editors who worked on the stories. Mm-hmm. They, they, they combined that for Golf Plus, and he was the purple pencil. <laughs> and I, I, I sat outside Joe's office, and uh, I think he, I may have reminded him of himself about 50 years earlier. And, um, you know, Joe was winding down a very long career at the magazine. And so he just was not grinding on the stories like other editors. So, yeah, um, yeah. so that was wonderful. That was all to my, my benefits. So there were certainly things got touched and messed with and it was always painful, but overall, um, the stories were, were pretty lightly edited and that was a godsend. And then when I, you know, like when I, when I would get sent out to do, uh, especially, so my, my internship ended in, in August of 94 and I still had five quarters to complete my degree and Mark Mulvoy, the, the, this classical character who ran the magazine told me, Oh, you know, kid, I'd hire you right now, but your parents would hate me. Go finish your degree. Mm-hmm. They made me, what was called a special contributor. That was kind of like a, you're on retainer basically. And, um, but I kept writing a lot of stories, uh, during that time. And then when, when I graduated, they, for a while they put me on college football. And so I did, I did other stories besides golf in those early years. And so I got to experience the, um, the level of editing that Crothers showed you in that class. And it was, it was a little discouraging and that, that helped send me back to golf, it, honestly, because um, ultimately as a writer, there's nothing more frustrating than when, when you labor over every sentence and every comma and uh, and then two or three other people come in and start jacking around with it. And, uh, it's definitely, uh, that drives every writer crazy. So, uh, in the, in the golf world, I, I was just able to, to write the stories I wanted to write and, um, and sail through the editing process. And I was way more satisfying. So that's good to hear because sometimes like when I found out that even in books, there's absolutely no guidance in, <laughs> in 20, you know, I guess it was like 2015 then or 2020. Now there's part of me that was like, you know, I know I'm like uh, a precious writer, but I think maybe like a guiding hand at some point might be nice. But I think it's it's good to hear that perspective because I think if I had too much of it, I would probably rebel, and it wouldn't be uh, it'd be the kind of thing where I would long for the old days of total freedom. Yeah, yeah. Books is interesting because uh, I mean I've, I've done enough now that I've had different experiences, and I I, I don't mind one person 
looking out for me and it's good to have a safety net and yeah, someone to bounce yeah. ideas off of. And, and so in, when I have had book editors who have been involved, it, at least you're only, you only have to negotiate with one person. Um, but yeah, those old SI days were crazy. I mean, it's hard to, it, you can't even as, as someone in the business is coming up now, they, they, they can't even wrap their head around what it was like. Um, I mean, even the idea of having a fact checker is such, you know, a, a huge luxury, we don't really have it at golf.com at golf magazine. There's some, but I'm just, you know, as part of my internship, I did fact check stories. And so now I, I, I finished my story and then I just started from the top and just fact check it. Like I did in the old days, even though I've already, it's my own stuff. And I, I kind of know where the information came from, but I always go back and confirm it and triple check it and make sure it's not my memory failing, you know, check out the sourcing a little more completely, uh, and well, Twitter, uh, Twitter is the ultimate fact checker. So you have to do that, right? Because somebody's, <laughs> somebody's going to catch you out if you mess anything up, I've found. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some of that. That's true. So, um, and it is also, it's a little different because if you get something wrong in a dot-com store, you, you can go in and change it. It's not like, you know, when in print, it's just out there forever. And it yeah, was, right, right. was lived in fear of, of getting something wrong. And the worst thing ever was when the SI fact checkers would, would insert something into your story that was wrong. It happened to me a couple times and it's still, I went back and just read um, a, uh, one of my old game stories and there's something in there. Um, they, they, it has to do, it's, it's a Jack Nicholas. One of the, one of the years he won the PGA was when it was in February in Florida mm-hmm. back in the seventies. Um, but they, in the the tour guide, it still shows it as the fourth major of the year. Uh, I know that I know the difference, but if you just if you're just a regular fact checker, you wouldn't. And so they they put something in about how Nicholas had won three straight majors, which of course he never had. Um, but if you look at if you look at the tour guide, I can see where they made that mistake. But I mean, that's the ultimate killer when a fact checker gets something <laughs> wrong and jacks up your coffee. It's like, like what are you oh. here for? Why are you here if you're going to do I mean, that? 20 years later, it still bothers me. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so, so, you, so, yeah, after college, you, you went right back to SI. And this is probably a dumb question, but were you back in New York? Were you like physically in those offices when you weren't traveling for a story? Yeah, that's actually really funny. So, um, Mulvoy, who was my the the, the the managing editor, who was kind of my guardian angel, he had told me when I, he said, you know, go back to school. We'll make you a special contributor when you graduate. I want you to move to New York because um, that's going to be an important part of having the resources in the magazine. So, anyway, so Mulvoy says, yeah, I'd like you to be in New York. So, I graduate college and you know, have this big emotional goodbye with my girlfriend who's staying in California. And I, I moved to New York and all my stuff. And it's, you know, it's a big tumult to, to start over in a new city. And, but during those kind of two years when I was finishing my degree, Mulvoy was in pre-retirement and he was kind of phasing himself out of the magazine. And so when I, when I get to New York, a guy named Peter Carey, who wore suspenders and a bow tie. I guess how old school he was. He, he took me out for lunch, kind of like a welcome to the magazine lunch. And he, he makes a little toast. He's like, he's like, so what, what brought you to New York? And I said, well, Peter, you know, Mulvoy told me I had to come. He's like, ah, BS. You could have stayed in California. It's not a big deal. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I just tore my life asunder. <laughs> uh, I guess it's my fault. I didn't do my due diligence. But That's funny. Uh, it was, I mean, it's one of those moments you never forget. But 
it, it was advantageous to be in New York and, and get to know the editors and the other writers and, uh, and just to be living in New York when you're young and, um, it's, it's something everybody should do. So I don't regret it, but it's a funny footnote. So I was there for a couple of years and then I, I eventually moved back to California because if you're from California, it's hard to live anywhere else. But, yeah. um, so yeah, to your question, it was like, you're, you're on the road a lot. And, and then when, when you're not, you would, you would just have downtime. And it was, it was great because in those days, if, if, if you did 20 stories a year at sports Illustrated, you were killing it. Like you're making the other guys look bad. And, I mean, there was writers who only did a, got a handful of things in print. And so because of golf plus I was probably doing 25 stories a year mm-hmm. yeah. and, and everyone was all jolly about it, but that still meant half of the year I was just kind of off and you might be working on something and you're making phone calls and you're setting things up and, but you're basically just kind of free. And it was wonderful. Of course that's changed now. All those, those... I was going to say, that sounds amazing. I would have no, <laughs> have no idea how to relate to that. I think in yeah. like, you know, if uh, in a month where I didn't do 25 stories, I'd be like, Oh shit, that was, <laughs> that was a bad month. Yeah. Well, the internet has, has obviously <laughs> yeah, filled that yeah. void. And even, even the major championship weeks, like all I had to do was produce one story on Sunday night. That's right. And it had, to, right. it, had yeah. be, it had to be damn good. And I was worried about it all week long and I was reporting and I was chasing, but ultimately, you know, sneaked out and played a lot of twilight golf with Bamberger and mm-hmm. had, slept in and rolled in it at lunchtime on Thursday and Friday. And it was just such a different, more leisurely pace when you're at tournaments. And uh, yeah. as you know, now you're just hustling because you've got at least a couple, you know, one story a day and maybe more you got to pump out. Uh, and then you're also preparing for like the big Sunday night piece as well. So it's, right. yep. it's definitely changed a lot. So we talked to a lot of people on this podcast who, like last week, I I spoke with Joe Poznanski, who's moved from outlet to outlet to outlet uh, over the course of his career. But you've kind of had a little bit of a unique journey where I know things have changed for you, but in one sense, you can look at it and say, okay, you've stayed in place and the outlet has changed around you (laughs) for like, I don't know, for like 25 years now. Um, is that kind of a, it's, you know, like you're still at golf.com. I, and I know that's different from SI, but it had been an SI thing for a long time. Uh, and now you've gone through three owners. What has that been like to sort of stay in one place and, and watch everything transform? Yeah, I'm in a weird spot, you know, age wise, I'm, I'm not that old, but I am kind of a dinosaur and I've, I've been on the beat now for more than a quarter century. And so it's just, it's funny how much the job has changed, how much the, the press room dynamic has changed, um, how much my responsibilities have evolved. I mean, imagine the first, I don't know, when did I get on Twitter? The first 15 years of doing this job, there wasn't even really social media. And um, the the job has changed dramatically, but the foundation is is the same. You have to write good stories, whether it's 3,000 words on deadline for, for a national magazine or it's, 900 words to get some quick up on, you know, the Thursday of, of a major, uh, the requirement is the same. You have to write good stories and that, that really, that that's timeless. So how we deliver them, how, how they're consumed, uh, how quickly they're turned around. I mean, that that's obviously evolved, but uh, ultimately the job is the same. I mean, you have to have a point of view. You have to, have, you have to report hard and get your own information. Uh, 
you have to write, have lively prose and it just has to be something that, that people want to read. And that that's forever and ever. And um, so I, I will say that there's times I feel a little estranged from the golf press. Like, you know, right. Yeah. 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 The, um, the experience on Saturdays and Sundays when, when everyone's on Twitter and it's just lots of inside jokes and memes and yeah. I, I can't keep up. I just, it's just not really, I, I, I enjoy them and uh, I, I appreciate them, but I don't really, I, I don't indulge in them. I, it's just not my thing. And, um, and uh, in no way do I, am I disparaging those who, who put them out, but that's just not, I guess my, my skill set. And so, um, you know, it's more, it seems like that's become a bigger part of the experience of following golf. And so, uh, maybe I, I need to, I don't know, does North, does North Carolina graduate program have like a, a meme uh, class that I could yeah, take? Yeah, you can come stay with me and take the meme class. There's a specific <laughs> golf meme class and you can, <laughs> and you can be really cool. Uh, no, like I think it's great that you're not that into it. I, I sometimes like try to get into it, but the thing is it's, it becomes this thing where, the tone of what being a golf fan is like on Twitter is set by maybe like, you know, five to seven people or maybe a dozen people. And I always find that the stuff is about 70% as funny as advertised or maybe less. And, but also it filters into this like sameness. And I, I do get to the point where I kind of find it depressing and it makes me want to like do something completely different. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say like to, to keep your brain nice and uncorrupt for your, for your actual like worthwhile writing, uh, continue to stay away from that world. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, even this is, I've become more aware of this as a problem to, specific to me is that the things that I write for, for the website and for, and for golf magazine, I spend a lot of time on and they're well considered and I, I care about every word and they, they may they have a point of view, but it's a little measured uh, depending on the topic. Whereas Twitter, like, I just toss stuff off and it probably taps into like my, my smart Alex side. And I think a lot of people in the golf world only see the tweets. They don't, they don't ever click on the links. Yeah. And see the, yeah, totally. Yep. They don't see the more thoughtful stories. And so like in that regard, I don't think social media has really helped me because it's, um, you know, I, I, I care deeply about the longer pieces, but I, the tweets seem to get more eyeballs or attention. It's like, uh, so I've actually probably just, I don't know, the last few months I've kind of taken a step back a little bit from, I'm still on Twitter, but also with the run up to the election and everything else, I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot less time on, on Twitter. I think it's, it's probably a good thing and just kind of let the, the, the larger stories and, and the real work speak for itself. It's probably a, a winning strategy, but uh, you know, you can't, you can't totally unplug. I mean, it's where that's the source of all information it feels like. And that's uh, as you noted. I mean, the the, the tone of, of professional golf is determined in large part by how it's tweeted about, and so uh, you have to be part of the conversation. But I guess I'm I'm striving to be a smaller part. Yeah, no, I think it's smart. I noticed on your Twitter that like the last month, it's kind of been you know maybe a dozen tweets, but. Um... So looking on the opposite side of the social media spectrum, um, you've written a couple books and I won't ask you about each individual one. I will say everybody should read them. Uh, the Rich Bean book is great. The Augusta book is great. Um, but I don't, unless I'm missing something, there haven't been that many in the last few years. So I think the question I want to ask you is, what are your thoughts on, on like writing books now? Are we going to see another Alan Shipnuck golf book or 
do you see that as like sort of a, a part of your career that like belongs to this 2000 to 2010 sort of period? Well, no, I'm definitely in, in fact, after the swinger came out in, um, was that 13 or 14? I signed a deal with Simon Schuster for, for another PJ tour book. And so um, I'm definitely going to do one more. And I've actually lately gotten very excited about um, doing a Phil Mickelson biography. I think he's such a protein figure and he's, he's had such a huge life. Oh and yeah. No one's that ever, would be incredible. Yes. Please do that. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever done a Phil biography. So, and, you know, he, he, after the 04 masters, he, he did this very, uh, quick turnaround, um, auto bio written by a guy, you just a ghostwriter was brought in. He didn't know Phil didn't know golf and it really showed in the book. It's, it's a half hard effort at best. And so, um, so yeah, I've, I've been talking to Simon Schuster about that. We're, we're just finalizing the details, but I, that's the plan is, um, is to go deep on, on the life and times of Phil Mickelson, which I think will be endlessly entertaining. Oh, and, man. The thing that kills me about Phil that I think most people don't realize is that when you dig down into like the FBI thing he went through, only a technicality prevented him from going to jail. <laughs> like, I don't know if people really understand how close <laughs> it could have been uh, to, to him like going to prison for that. And I mean, I know that's just a small part of his story, but it's, it's incredible. Like just the things that this guy has done and the stories that circulate about him. Yeah. Yeah. That's that the episode emblematic of, you know, Phil definitely um, pushes the envelope and everything. And that that's, that's one example. And yeah, it's, you know, the, he's obviously very Palmer like, and he's had these incredible triumphs and, and these horrific heartbreaks on the golf course. He's, he's been through a lot with, with, you know, Amy's cancer and house almost burning down in a wildfire. And then all the mini controversies, whether it's, you know, slagging on tiger's equipment or, um, saying he didn't want to pay taxes in California. I mean, it's just the guy's had a big life and he he's a great talker and there's a zillion stories about Phil out there. And I think it'll be really fun to round them all up. So uh, I'm excited about that as, as a project going forward. Um, and I, I mean, I like, I like the act of writing books is just freeing and yeah. I, I have another, I, I just finished a manuscript recently. It's, um, it's, it's a guy I met through golf. Uh, his name is Jack Grant Colas. Um, and his, his college sweetheart who was pregnant with the first child was on United 93. And, uh, obviously Jack's been sorted to Helen back and it's his story. Um, and it has a happy ending cause he just got remarried and, uh, but it, it's, it was a long road to, um, uh, whether it's you know, PTSI and depression and heavy drinking and, um, but there's, there's a lot of humanity in his story and there's, there's a lot of hope and, um, but there's obviously a lot of heartbreak too. And so I, I spent a couple of years talking to Jack and I, I just typed that up and in fact, it's getting sent out to publishers in the next few days. And so oh, that's exciting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was nice. I mean, there's, Jack's a golfer. He actually went, he was, he played on the freshman team at the university of Texas back when during the Mark Brooks, Randall Chambly era. So there's oh, wow. golf makes a few cameos in the story. There's some fun little stories. Uh, you know, the only hole in one he's ever made in his life is when his dad was in, in his eighties and was had, you know, pre pre Alzheimer's and was one of their last rounds together. And then it's a sweet moment and there's, uh, but it's really not a golf story. And um, I learned a heck of a lot because there's one very meaty chapter where it's kind of the, the politics of 9-11 um, as seen through the eyes of a surviving family member. And 
And Jack's actually part of the lawsuit against Saudi Arabia that a lot of the surviving families, they're basically mm. suing the United States government trying to get classified information to understand what role Saudi Arabia played in the attacks. And um, that suit is still going on almost 20 years later. And it's, it really tells you a lot about the tangled relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And um, so delved really deep into all that for one chapter, which I think is I, it's one of the best things I've ever typed. It's, it's so, you That's know, awesome. I read the, yeah, I read the nine 11, um, commission report, you know, front to back twice, a bunch of other books, um, all of Jack's experiences and, uh, it's all kind of refract, you know, refracted through his, his point of view and, and his experiences. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun to just get totally off of the golf, um, beat and, and to, to delve into some, a really human story, but, that had nothing to do with, with sports. And, um, so anyway, so that, that's done and it's very satisfying to get to the, to the, the finish line. And, um, so I, I'm always looking for book projects. Um, Hey Alan, real quick, do you have 10 more minutes? I know we've kind of stumbled along here. Are you okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, this is, this is an aside. I'll edit this out, but I'm, I just lost you for a quick second again, but it's been pretty good since you moved. So I'm just going to keep rolling. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's interesting because I was going to ask you this question, uh, as someone who's covered golf for, you know, much less time than you have. Um, I think there are times when it's easy for me, or it would be easy to sort of slip into a mindset where I go, okay, I don't know if I really like golfers all that much, even, <laughs> even the good ones. I don't know if these are like my kind of people. Um, but I've been able to sort of keep it in perspective, I think, and take the good things or the bad, but Uh, I wanted to ask you about that. And then the follow-up was going to be, does writing about non-golfers like this project you were just talking about, does that help you keep perspective in a way? Or do you ever even have that problem of going, geez, like, who am I covering here? Like, what, what, what am I doing? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, I think in, in every facet of American life, the Trump years have, um, created division and, uh, we've all felt that in whatever profession you're in that, uh, you know, I think as the people collectively, we've rarely been more divided and, and you can feel that in the golf world, you know, some of this, a lot of stuff is spilled out into the open that was just kind of, uh, ignored or lightly treaded upon or wasn't even known. And so, um, you know, I, I try, I try not to, um, uh, let politics get into my, into my typing. It just, it's, it's kind of a no win thing that I've, I've realized and I don't, I don't, even, I don't tweet about it. Uh, but it's definitely, I, I think, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to find the right word for it. There's, there's been a lot of introspection for, for all of us, uh, uh in every walk of life. And, you know, the golf world's always been very conservative. And, uh, so as, as someone who grew up in California, you know, in a family of, of politicians who were Democrats, uh, you know, it, it's definitely has thrown in sharp relief sort of the, the cultural differences, but you know, you can't, you can't, you have to overcome that. I mean, you're still writing about people and right, right. there's still common ground and there's still, um, there's still stories to tell. So um, I, I've, I've tried not to give that too much energy, but it's it certainly, as you say, I mean, there's occasionally there's moments like, yeah, you, you feel a little um, disenfranchised from from the, the larger golf world because you see things a little differently. But maybe that's a good thing. I mean, have a different perspective and a different voice um, is, is necessary. So, 
um, you know, to answer your question, yeah, there's, there's, there's challenges. I mean, um, it, I was talking to friends in other, in other, in other worlds, like who, you know, they're, they're in the healthcare industry or they're in social services. Like they can't relate to the fact that most of the people I talk to, you know, live in mansions and fly private jets. Like that's just, <laughs> yeah. it, those are, those are not, that's not my social circle away from work. And, yeah. uh, and some of the, some of the stories I tell, it's just like bizarre to them. And, uh, you, you kind of lose sight of that because that's just, that's just life on tour. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I think it's all, that's always been an issue, um, to some degree, but you know, back in, back in the, in the old days of sports writing, you know, the writers rode on the same train as, as the ball players. and that's right. You yeah. know, Grantland Rice was more famous than any of the Yankees that he wrote about. Um, you know, he's more celebrated in the city of New York. Um, and there was, I, I think there was maybe, uh, a more sense of equality and, uh, now, uh, it's, it's not, it's not too dissimilar from how CEO compensation has, has changed versus the average worker. I mean, the, the <laughs> lives right. yeah, yeah. that the athletes lead are very different than the lives of the sports writers. And so, uh, it's just kind of a cultural problem that we all have in every sport where, um, you know, you, you're writing about people who, whose experience is very different than your own. And so you have to, um, you have to remember that and you have to overcome that and you have to w- really work hard to find uh, the, the human element in the story because ultimately um, what, whatever station you are in life, the, there's, there's going to be common ground. You just, just have to find it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of um, player journalists interactions, uh, there was a moment that anybody who follows you or golf will remember um, after the 2018 Ryder cup where Rory uh, in his press conference and the team presser, kind of called you out and said, where's Alan Shipnuck? Because you had written a story, I don't know, a year and a half ago um, that I took his tongue in cheek a little bit, at least saying basically that the Americans are going to dominate the Ryder cup. Uh, and when he did that, I was like, you know what? That's really flattering for Alan. I mean, to, to be mentioned like that off, you know, in public and it, it just shows like his status and it's a good thing. Um, and then Tiger Woods won the masters. And um, I had written a piece basically saying that he'll never win again uh, in really emphatic terms years earlier and the response kind of sucked, actually, <laughs> like at least for a couple of days, like the people kind of attacking on Twitter, it was like overwhelming. It's like, Jesus, this is like this is terrible. And it kind of recast how I saw the the Alan Shipnuck, Rory McIlroy thing. Um, and so that's a question I really wanted to ask you is going through that. Was it like was it kind of a funny thing for you? Like, did you have thick skin about it or did it start to suck at a certain point? Uh, like I experienced in a much, you know, a much lower way uh, a couple months later. Yeah. I mean, that, that whole thing was funny. You're right. I, I mean, it was, the column was purposely over the top. Like I wrote an obituary for the Ryder cup and it, there was yeah. a sense of, of hyperbole and ridiculousness, but I, I can't believe like I, you know, I was amazed that it had such a long shelf life and that the, the right European Ryder cup team cared so much. Like, you know, it was, it was just a column I tossed off in about three hours and then it lived on for, a year and a half. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was fun in that the players themselves didn't, they, you know, Rory had a laugh all the players, um, in general thought it was pretty funny. And of course the, the Europeans, they got the last laugh, so yeah. they could, be, they could be good humored about it. Um, and I mean, I think on some level, the players understand like this is all show business, right? Like professional golf doesn't exist without the fans. 
our job doesn't exist without the readers. Like we're, we're sort of doing it. We're all part of the same show in, on, on some level and uh, it was something to talk about. It added a little extra juice to the whole thing. And I don't think the players were bent out of shape whatsoever, but you know, the people on Twitter, it's an angrier edge. Like you think that I insulted their, you know, their grandmother yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's always really interesting that to, to, when that, that mob turns against you and it gives you some insight into the players, what they deal with, um, you know, when, when the guy loses the masters, uh, in some spectacular fashion, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing that people care so much. I think, it, I think it's good. It keeps us all in business, but, um, it, it does get to, you know, I, I love the jokes. I mean, the, the, the people who have fun with it and come back at you tongue in cheek, it's great. But when, when people are just calling you an asshole over and over, like, <laughs> I know, I know. It gets a little, it gets a little old, like, yep, yep. you know, like all I was doing was, was making a prediction about a golf tournament. It was not that big a deal, but, um, people do take it very personally. And yeah, I mean, I try not, I try not to let that stuff, um, generally I just, I just laugh, but, uh, you know, people can definitely could cross the line and it gets obnoxious. And so, uh, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't rise to the level of, um, being a major problem in my life, but sure. it's, just, yeah. it's, an, it's an irritation, you know, it's like a, <laughs> it's like a mosquito buzzing around your ear when you're trying to sleep. Like, uh, it's, <laughs> It takes some of the fun out of it. But on the other hand, like, you know, part of the job when you're, especially when you're writing opinion pieces is to provoke a reaction. And, and someone said that was the, that was the biggest fail in the history of journalism. I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it's an opinion column that was meant to inspire emotion and I think it succeeded. (laughs) Yeah, of course it did. um, I mean, you got, you got Roy McElroy to talk about it. I mean, it succeeded marvelously. Yeah. And it was a long-term prediction and I still believe that 10 years from now, it's going to be, it's going to be accurate where, you know, the U S the core of, of the American team is still so young and so talented and the key Europeans like Sergio and Justin Rose and Heinrich Stenson, you know, Westwood Poulter, like those guys are all in their forties. Like I think that Paris is going to be remembered as, as sort of the last hurrah for that generation. And, you know, the secret sauce is that the, that we can never quite put our finger on why is that Europe, it just has better chemistry and they rise to the occasion and the American team is dragged down by the pettiness and yeah, the, yeah. The, the Patrick Reed element and the Tom Watsons of the world. And, and so, uh, you know, Europe may continue to, to pull the upsets, but I think that the, the, the gap between the two teams is going to increase. And I think the, the U S is going to be clearly superior over the next decade. And now whether they can win four cups in out of five, I mean, on paper they, they should, but can they actually do it and overcome all the bad juju? I mean, we'll see, but um, I think when we, when we, when we tape another podcast in 2030, if we're both still doing this, that <laughs> the U S will have, have turned the tide and then won a bunch of Ryder cups. And uh, of course, it's a long time to wait for vindication, but I think it's going to happen. 
at that point we're going to be communicating entirely in memes but uh i'm, I'm setting it on my calendar as a as a day yeah i'll just what is it, the elmo meme or the world's on fire that's just gonna be me. yeah 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 or the dog sitting there with like the fire behind him yeah exactly yeah. um so all right alan real quick let's pretend this is about uh this podcast is about current sports uh that's the segment we'll go into now um PGA Tour so far since the restart. I want to get your thoughts on that because um, I read your piece from around Connecticut and I was right there with you. I didn't write about it, but basically at that point I expected um, what is happening, what we see happening now with Major League Baseball. I thought that was going to happen with the PGA Tour. I thought it was going to be this cascading effect where you were going to have you know, dozens of positive tests and it was going to come to a point where they had to seriously think about uh, about shutting it down. Um I think I've been pretty pleasantly surprised with how it's been run so far. And not just that, but pretty pleasantly surprised with how few positive tests there have been. Um, what is your perspective a couple weeks after writing that? Um, do you, is, are you feeling basically the same or do you have a little more confidence now? Well, the, the tour has done a spectacular job. And, but more than that, it's the players and the caddies. I, I didn't put this in that, in that story that I wrote, but come, there was there was a lot of things were going the wrong way in Hilton Head, not just the environment around the tour, but I'd heard from a few folks that, that a younger player had like a house party where there was up to a couple dozen tour types hanging out, partying. Yeah. And, you know, that was that's the equivalent of the Marlins going to a strip club in Atlanta. Like, you know, that's the super spreader event um, that, that could have jeopardized the entire season. Um and so that that informed it, you know, the fact that the, in the caddy yard, there's a lot of guys who are consumers of Fox News and they have various conspiracy theories and skepticism about about the virus in general. And I thought the yeah. caddies can help bring down the whole tour because uh, they were a little cavalier and there were various guys were spotted around town in Hilton Head. And so, you know, we went from Hilton Head, went, we went to Hartford there's all those WDs and positives and it just seemed like inevitable that it was going to go south. Completely, but yeah. what, what changed after that story came out was the tour really tightened up the bubble. You know, it was, it was insanity that you could take a test and before you got the results, you could go out and practice and mingle with the other players. And that's what was happening. So they, you know, the week of Hartford, they started changing things like that. But, but the biggest difference is I think the players and the caddies realized that they were teetering on the edge and it was going to take significant buy-in and personal responsibility. And that really flipped, um, you know, starting Hartford, I believe. And, you know, I, I heard some stories about um, some veterans went to that young player who hosted that party and got in his grill and said, don't ever do anything like that again. Like wow. you're going to mess up wow. for the rest of us. And players talking to their caddies more forcefully about whether you believe this or not, this is how it's going to be. And so I think, um, you know, what, what happened that week when you had two of the top five players in the world, uh, Webb and, and Brooks get knocked out because of virus related concerns and you had other guys tested positive. And, um, that was a real inflection point for the entire tour and to the credit of Jay Monahan and his people, they, they tightened things up and, the players and the caddies really took ownership of, of this season and, and made some significant changes in, in how they're conducting their own business. And it's only because of those reasons that the tour is still going gangbusters. I mean, um, now I also expected that as guys took time off, they would go home to Florida and Texas and Arizona, 
which as we know are some of the worst hotspots and it was going to be really hard to keep the virus out. Um, but I think they, they're, they're taking their off weeks very seriously and they're keeping their, their, their contacts very limited. And so there's, there's been a shift in, in, um, in just how the players are, are approaching this. And that, that's why the, that's why the, the tour is succeeding against really long odds is this traveling circus. Um, when you get, you know, major league baseball, I, I think, this has been a wake up for the players. I'm sure the NBA guys have seen what's happening. I mean, the question is, can they all, can they, can they affect change fast enough to save their seasons? I mean, we're going to, we're going to see, because as, as you noted, baseball's in a really tough spot right now, but you know, it, it really comes down to the players and, and the people close to them. If, if they take this very, very seriously, then I think you can make it work. But th- then there's this, there's the secondary question, like, and this is a, this is a thornier issue is, as people are waiting, you know, seven, 10, 12, 14 days to get their test results as, as all of the, you know, the general public is has lots of roadblocks and frustrations with testing. I mean, the optics of burning up all these tests for professional athletes and they're getting results back two hours later, you know, like that, that, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, and that, that's for a pay grade above mine. Yeah, like, is yeah, it, yeah. Is that okay as a society? Are we gonna are we gonna devote these resources so the games can go on? I think a lot of fans are fine with it, and um, that is, they're, they're not wrong. But um, it's definitely, you know, that I think you know. I, I think honestly, Alan, my opinion on that is that it's the wrong scapegoat. I think with like enough political commitment, everybody could have that, and it's not you know, it's not right to say, oh, why did the sports get it instead of us? Because I don't think it's that kind of either or situation. I think with, yeah, again, I think with political commitment, everyone could have it. Well, I mean, you're right. But where we are right now is that the federal government's pulling back on testing. Exactly, exactly. uh, You know, it's just the reality. Yes, you're right. The the wealthiest nation in the world, we should be able to have tests for everybody whenever they want them. But that's not the reality we live in. And so as there's limited testing and, and I... I was just this guy following Twitter said, oh, I, I took a, I took a COVID test and I got the results 16 days later. You know, I'm not <laughs> it's useless. I've, I've tried. Yeah, it's useless. I've tried hard in those 16 days, but do I have, do I, am I negative or positive? I really don't know anymore. Like I'll, maybe I'll take another test, but yeah, it, it, it's insanity. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, sports are an important part of, of society. They really are. I mean, they bring people together. They, they help us pass the time that, uh, and it's obviously part of our, professional lives for both you and I. So, I, you know, I was never rooting for the, the, for the games to go away, but it just felt like something had to change dramatically. And I think on the PGA tour, it did. I think these other sports, they haven't quite gotten there. And, um, but you know, I'll be the PGA championship. I mean, if they're going to, if they're going to be playing golf, I'm going to pay attention to it. Yeah, wow. exactly. Exactly. Well, let me, uh, it's thundering outside here and I've taken up a ton of your time, but let me sneak one more question in. Um, and you're going to hate it because I saw that you uh, muted Bryson, the word Bryson on Twitter the other day. <laughs> but I have to, I've got you here. I've got to ask you, uh, in your opinion, is this, are we witnessing the start of a revolution? And I know that sounds like a hyperbolic question, but I'll ask it anyway. Well, it's, I guess that's how revolutions are. Like things percolate for a long time. And we know that distance is as as gotten out of control of the professional game. And now Bryson's just taken it to the illogical extreme and, um, you know, driver wedge has become increasingly boring on the PGA tour. And now he's, he's just going driver chip and <laughs> a pitch, but, um, 
you know, this is, this has been a problem for a while. I, I think four or five years ago, I started saying that to test tour players, um, golf course needed to be nine or 10,000 yards. And everyone, you know, of course everyone was mad about that, but it's just the reality. I mean, his average approach shot at colonial and, um, and then these other courses is a hundred yards. I mean, you're just taking so much artistry and challenge out of the game at that point. And I mean, distance should be an advantage to hit it long is a talent. I mean, distance should always be rewarded, but not to the extent that it is now where the, the golf course is utterly defenseless. And um, so I think the, the USJ and the RNA have wanted to act, but they've never quite been able to pull the trigger because they, it's just been this slow creep. But now, now something dramatic is, has happened. And that, I think this gives them the cover to say, okay, this is not the game as we know it. And so I, I do think we're going to see something profound happen with the rules. I don't know when uh, it's, it takes a while, but um, I, I think Bryson has, has just taken this whole thing to um, such a different level that you, you can't, I mean, this is basically like the NBA rims have been lowered to nine feet. Yeah, exactly. you know, that's the world exactly. we're living in. Yeah. I mean, center field is now 310 feet. Yeah, they play, they play in Williamsport. MLB games are in the little league world series stadiums. Yeah. It's just gotten ridiculous. And um, it affects the integrity of the sport. I mean, can you imagine if nothing has changed and they get to St. Andrews and they just, and they don't have, ex, you know, really extreme weather. I mean, 35 under. Yeah. I was going to say you could, you could break 30 under at St. Andrews probably. Oh, you, there'll be multiple 59s and you know, it's just for course, it's been around a long time that is considered by many to be the best in the world. I'm not obsessed with par like, I, but at some point it gets to just to be a joke. And if you have six of the par fours are drivable, I mean, come on. Um, yeah. and it's just, it, it's getting to be silly. And even, you know, people who say, well, par is an abstract concept and just don't think about par. It's really more about the aesthetics when, when every shot into a par four is, is, is a wedge, the worst the players are going to do is hit it to 20 feet. You know, there's, there's no sense of impending doom when you've got a sand wedge in your hand as a tour player. You know, yeah. if you've got a four iron, things can go, can go sideways and there's a lot more drama in the shot. If it can be executed and the range of outcomes is much, much larger. So, uh, it, that, that's just the, the game has gotten a little too easy and birdies are coming too cheap. And, uh, I, I don't mind birdies, but they have to be, they have to be hard fought. You know, it has to be the, the result of of, you know, two really, really good shots. Um, and the scales have just tipped so far in one direction that, that something does have to change. I think just for the integrity of the competition. Yeah. And I don't think there's anyone who doesn't think that watching like a U.S. open where the winning score is two under or something is way more fun. You know, I, mean, I know the players hate it and whine about it, but that is just way better to watch as a golf fan than a, a colonial type thing where it's basically like, well, it's it's essentially a putting contest at this point. Whoever gets to you know twenty two under or eighteen under or whatever the case may be. Well, and but it's interesting because both like Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy lately have, have been complaining about the, the easy setups and the low scoring because their their advantage is being reduced. Yeah. Much like you know Tiger's was was reduced when everyone got the solid core ball, um, and you know the, the very best players are realizing this is this 
anyone there's, there's 20 guys now that can shoot 25 under, it's going to be hard for me to separate myself. And um, so it's interesting that I, I think, I think the best players would like tougher setups and they'd like more separation uh, of skill sets and they'd like more penalty for bad shots. And so that's also a, a shift that's going to help the, the SGA and, and the RNA because, you know, let's face it, all these guys are paid by the manufacturers. And so they're compromised on some level, but a Rory, a Brooks, a tiger, I mean, theoretically they have FU money and they can still speak their mind. And so that's going to be massively important. If major change is coming, you need the top players to support the, the ruling bodies. And I think that's coming. I think, I think more and more that the best players are realizing that this isn't working for them anymore. And so whether they think it's the right thing for the game or it's just self-interest, I think that they'll back change. And, and that, that's a very important shift. Well, this has been great, Alan. Uh, I promise you 45 minutes and we're at approximately four hours now. So, uh, <laughs> I, But I really do appreciate your time. It was a great convo. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. All right. Thanks for having me. Shane. It was fun. Well, again, put on your calendar 2030. We're going we're gonna to come back to this and, and see how we're doing. Segment break. All right, that was Alan Shipnuck. Thanks again, Alan. Thanks to you all for listening. Episode number 24, now in the books, Apocalypse Sports Radio. Uh, if you're into this, there are, as you might imagine, 23 other podcasts. Some of them are long-form interviews like this, and I've also recently been doing some narrative things where we look back at an interesting moment in sports, like, say, the Richard riots in Montreal, or, uh, you know, the 2007 Fiesta Bowl between Boise State and Oklahoma. Things like that. Uh, and you can also check out ApocalypseSports.net, where I write three times a week uh, on all things sports, typically, again, looking back at cool things that have happened. Uh, if you want to sort of tip me, uh, all this content is free, but if you want to uh, subscribe or, or put some money in the chip jar, or whatever you want to call it, uh, Patreon.com slash ApocalypseSports. For $3 a month, you can do that. And, uh, yeah, that's all I have. So thank you all very much. Have a wonderful weekend, a wonderful day, and, indeed, wonderful lives. Goodbye. Goodbye.